Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 49 of the End of Sport podcast. I am Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, hi. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, hey, everyone. Um, listen, this is an episode we are really excited to share with you um, because honestly, like this has been the theme of our show from the very start. The end of sport was about the end of sport in the context of a global pandemic. Um, and we've talked about the pandemic for in, in one way or another, 48 other episodes. Um, but, but today we are talking exclusively about the pandemic. Um, we have two public health ex experts on the show, um, Gavin Yamey from Duke University and Zachary Binney from Emory to talk through both COVID-19 in a broad sense and also the way in which um, COVID-19 intersects with the world of sport. So we're really excited to share the interview with you in general. But before we get to that, right, we're also living through this really bizarre moment where the president of the United States has COVID-19. And so the news cycle, everything is dominated with this sort of question about now, about how the disease spreads and everything else. And here's one thing I just, I feel I have to say. We are obsessing right now about the Rose Garden and about what Trump and his fellow officials did in terms of their kind of egregious, negligent willingness to spread the virus to each other and also to spread it subsequently to anyone they could possibly think of, from Republican donors to the security detail that they work with to the workers in the White House right? And it's horrific stuff, you know, and no one has any questions about where we stand in terms of our politics on this, right? I'm not sugarcoating anything. But actually, the thing I want to bring up is there is a lot of outrage right now for what the folks at the White House are doing. Where is that fucking outrage when it comes to the Dallas Cowboys putting 25,000 people in a closed stadium? the exact same time it's happening at the exact same time and we don't hear shit about that i mean in fact on twitter we have reporters celebrating that there's been a new attendance record set in dallas today uh it's the exact same policy it's the exact same policy our universities have when they put fans in the stadiums twenty thousand plus fans in the stadiums and they don't actually they don't enforce any mask policies. It's the same thing when if you put fans in a stadium, you are asking for tailgating. You may prohibit tailgating on campus and feel good about yourself, but that tailgating is happening one block off campus. And it's happening because you put fans in a stadium and you invited them to indulge. But we don't hear about that. Trump's evil, but the universities, the Dallas Cowboys, eh, questionable policy. It's not and cool. Be, like... Beyond that, you all like it intersects with the sports world directly because you have people like John Jenkins, president of Notre Dame, attending the Rose Garden, attending it maskless and not distancing, and then himself punishing in a very punitive sense, like like dismissing and expelling students for that same behavior. So we we and we'll get into this in the show today, but we talk about the hypocrisy that is rampant when we talk about COVID-19 on our university campus and in our athletic departments that that we've like we've really talked about this if you've been following any of us on Twitter we've been talking about this for months but 
in today's episode, I think this really comes to light. And sort of one thing that I want to add, since we're sort of like hammering on all of the awful things that people are doing to the Notre Dame point, it is amazing that the system that Notre Dame set up for students to essentially snitch on each other, that the students instead have used that to report overwhelmingly the horrible behavior of the president, which is amazing, right? I mean, there's so few ways right now for like students um, who are trying their darndest to like keep their masks on and behave and all this stuff. And at least on my campus, they're doing a damn good job. And on Notre Dame, they're essentially using the system to call out their own president. So if we're going to kind of have any bright spot of last week, that was one of the few ones. So I just really wanted to like highlight that behavior because I just think that's awesome. They're sort of using the little agency that they have. They're making their voices heard. They're showing the disagreement with their president. And I just thought that was amazing. And on that note, if, as always, if you are enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at end of sport pod. Um, check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can um, donate to our Patreon, which can be found either on our Twitter bio or on our website. So with all of that said, please enjoy this very, very on-brand episode of The End of Sport. Gavin Yamey is Associate Director for Policy at the Duke Global Health Institute, Professor of the Practice of Global Health and Public Policy, and Director of the Center for Policy Impact in Global Health. His public health interventions appear in venues such as Time Magazine and the British Journal of Medicine, among countless other venues. Thanks so much for joining us today, Gavin. Oh, thanks for having me. And Zach Binney is an epidemiologist of sport and assistant professor of quantitative research and methods at Oxford College of Emory University. He is a staff writer at Football Outsiders and perhaps the most relied upon quote from journalists during the pandemic looking for an epidemiological take on sport with exceptionally good reason. Zach, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, but it's truly alarming that they're looking to me uh, for these quotes, but just trying to do what I can, I guess. Well, listen, I, what I love about your quotes is like, is the absolute candor. Um, you know, people so often, like, you're, you're just, you're willing to tell the truth, essentially, is what I'm trying to say, and, and not pull any punches. And we're in a moment where, you know, people's lives are at stake. And, you know, objectivity is all well and good, but sometimes people need to speak loudly and clearly when there's an urgent um, public health intervention to be made. And so I really appreciate that you're doing that. You know, I don't like to discuss personal medical issues too much, but I was tragically born without a self-preservation instinct. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear on that, in fact. Um, okay, well, listen, so we want to start here at the very beginning, actually, because I know, though it sounds a bit basic, um, Despite all the Twitter keyboard epidemiologists, basic is exactly where we are here in the United States, even after all this time. So, Gavin, I'd love it if you could start by explaining to us and our listeners in fairly lay terms what COVID-19 actually is. How does this virus affect the human body and how does it spread? Sure. So it's a new coronavirus. Um, there have been many other kinds of coronaviruses and your listeners will have heard of SARS that caused an outbreak back in 2002. That was a coronavirus. Um, there was another coronavirus called MERS. Um, so there have been previous outbreaks of similar viruses. And 
It is a respiratory virus in the sense that it is transmitted through the air and you're infected mostly from, uh, from airborne transmission when you breathe in the virus. And early on in the epidemic, in the pandemic, we were very fixated on the possibility of being infected by kind of touching surfaces where the virus lived, right? You may remember many of us were kind of disinfecting our groceries. We were not touching our mail for days. Um, we now know that actually that's not the main way in which you get infected. It can happen, right? Um, but it's pretty rare that you, you know, you touch a surface that has a, has a you know, a, an infected spot and then touch your mouth and breathe it in. In fact, it's much more uh, likely that you are trans that, that you are infected through the air, and there are two ways in which you can get infected. The first is through droplets, um, kind of relatively large, uh, wet um, drops in the air, uh, and that happens if an infected person kind of coughs or sneezes. Now, those large droplets they're spread ballistically and they fall to the ground, mostly within two meters, and that's why when 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 you know, uh, public health professionals say, you know, stay two meters away from people, six feet, it's because those droplets are going to fall to the ground if someone is sneezing or coughing. However, there is another way of becoming infected through the air, and that is through aerosols, tiny, tiny droplets, drier, they can stay airborne, and they can travel a lot further than two meters. Um, and our, our latest knowledge is that actually, that kind of airborne aerosol transmission is common. And it explains some of these super spreading events that you will have read about in churches or in bars, in gyms, in kind of karaoke bars. If you are inside around others, and particularly if people are singing or, or talking loudly or shouting, chatting, um, and if the ventilation is poor, that is sort of a perfect storm for these super spreading events inside. And so today we are really advising people, yes, stay distant from others. Yes, wear a mask. That's not just to protect you, but if you yourself are infected, and maybe you don't even know it yet, it's to stop you from pushing out droplets or aerosols. Stay outside as much as possible, right? Outside, much safer than inside. If you really have to be indoors, Everybody must be masked, stay distant, and you want the air to be, you know, ventilated, uh, filtrated, ideally. And yes, continue to wash your hands because there is still this small risk that you can get it, you know, from touching a, an object that has the virus on it. So our understanding of the transmission has changed. Uh, as you know, this outbreak began in China, but the old adage in public health is that an outbreak anywhere becomes an outbreak everywhere. And that's what we have seen, uh, you know, with rampant viral transmission worldwide and very different responses around the world to, to the virus to actually, you know, in terms of kind of the public policies that have been instituted, the United States, one of the outliers in doing exceptionally poorly, we have no federal plan at all. Um, and uh, in only three states actually are new daily cases falling. I'll just put in an additional plug for washing your hands separate from COVID-19. It's a good thing to do. Let's keep up with that. <laughs> oh, no, I, <laughs> I totally agree. 
Um, and I'm, sure, I'm sure you do. I always just like to toss that in there because sometimes I get asked, like, what's the major lesson that you hope we take from this pandemic moving forward? And I always go, if we could all just wash our hands more moving forward, that would probably be great. No, I totally agree. And, you know, as an observer of um, this could come out the wrong way, but as an observer of men in bathrooms, um, you know, men often don't wash their hands after they've been to the lavatory. And that is horrendous. And I hope that that is one thing that changes. Right. Um, that people Absolutely. Take, take that sort of hygiene a lot more seriously. Now, so much of the discussion and, and rightfully so has been on mortality and and. We would obviously um, love to hear your take on um, the question of mortality, generally speaking. Um, and I know Zachary has also addressed the question of like probability and our failure to actually understand probability of mortality. He's written about this on Twitter and it's been great. But there's also, and I think this brings it back to um, what you're mentioning about the failure of the United States, but particularly the failure of the United States when it comes to sport is the sort of absence of talk about the issue of complications. So Gavin, I'm interested to get kind of your take on or or give our listeners a little bit about um, some of the complications associated with COVID-19, for instance, um, and not exclusively, but most importantly, perhaps myocarditis. Yeah, I mean, I feel very passionately about this issue uh, as someone who has very close friends who have complications of COVID-19 that they are now living with. And also as someone who's looked at the data, death is not the only metric or outcome that matters in this disease. And we as a society have paid far too little attention to the complications that you've just mentioned. I think we have tended to see the disease wrongly as having two possible courses, right? Either you get it, you're really sick, you're hospitalized, maybe you end up on the intensive care unit, uh, and in the worst you know, health outcome, you die, or you get like a mild version, uh, and you know, it's like a cold, and, and maybe you have symptoms for a few days, and they disappear. But there's a third group that we are only starting to realize uh, is suffering. And they are a group who, you know, generally weren't hospitalized and who do have symptoms and their symptoms persist for weeks or even months. And it would appear from some of the best studies to date that around 10% of people who are infected go on to develop these long-term symptoms. Um, You know, they're called long haulers. You may have also heard the term long COVID. And although I called this a respiratory virus earlier, that's not quite right if you think about the kinds of um, uh, disease pathologies, the kinds of damage that this virus can do, not just to the lungs, but as you said, to the heart. It can cause inflammation of the heart, like myocarditis. Um, It can cause inflammation and damage to the brain, to the skin, um, to, to all, pretty much all organs when we, when, you know, if you look hard enough, you will find that it can cause damage in a very widespread manner. Um, and you know, this is a, this is a new virus. This is a new disease. We are really only starting to understand the kinds of manifestations, the kinds of pathologies, but this 
form of, of, of COVID-19, long COVID, it can be very disabling and very debilitating. And we as a, as a medical community have been very poor, I think, at recognizing that. We are only starting now to set up dedicated long COVID clinics. There aren't very many. We've been really quite dismissive, I think, as a, as a health community in recognizing the condition. We've been very poor at getting people specialized help and rehabilitation. And we've been astonishingly poor at doing research to understand this better. And it is absolutely the case that previously young, healthy people can develop long COVID. Uh, and as you and I know, we've seen this in, uh, you know, in young, healthy athletes and student athletes. Um, so I am extremely worried about this bizarre rhetoric. It's peddled by people like Scott Atlas, that is uh, President Trump's coronavirus czar, this myth that infections in young people don't matter. They do matter. They can cause death. It's rare, but it can occur in young people, particularly people of color. It can cause long COVID in young people. And of course, infections in the young do not remain hermetically sealed in that age group. Young people, like young infected people on campuses, they go on to infect the people around them, service workers, maintenance workers, bus drivers, cafeteria workers. Uh, many of those, in fact, in the United States, over 40% of service and maintenance workers on university campuses of people of color. And if they are infected, they have a higher risk of dying. So for all of those reasons, this bizarre rhetoric peddled by President Trump, who obviously I hope recovers from his own uh, COVID-19, I wish him the best, but the bizarre myths peddled by him uh, and his corona coronavirus are they absolutely have to be exploded by us in the health, scientific and medical community. And Zach, you've, you've been sort of a, you've been very vocal with our misunderstanding of probability when it comes to death rates, um, when it, uh, uh, relevant to, to COVID-19. Can you explain a little bit of your take on how we sort of fail to interpret um, what is on the surface a seemingly low death rate um, uh, in this context, in the context of COVID-19? Sure. So I have talked a little bit about that, but the first point that I should make is that the death rate does vary a lot by orders of magnitude by age. There is no question that this virus is much more dangerous in terms of mortality for older people, people than younger people. There's no getting around that. That does not mean that older people's lives are less valuable or that that is an excuse for not paying attention to the virus. Uh, that's also not an excuse for young people getting uh, sick. I don't know a single serious public health or medical professional who endorses that as a strategy because it, it sounds all fine and dandy until you remember that young people and old people have contact with one another. For example, several of us work on college campuses. Some of our faculty colleagues are older. Some of our students are younger. So a disease, you know, if our students get sick and we're teaching in person and they transmit it to some of our older colleagues, that's a problem. So it sounds great to say, we'll just let the young people get sick and, you know, we'll shield the old people, but that's, that's not really how it works um, in society. So that's a problem. But also, yeah, let's let's take 
relatively older people, like in the 50 to 70 age bracket, 99.5% of them will survive. But, and, and that sounds great, right? 99.5% survival. That sounds great. I love 99.5%. That's almost 100%, right? And I know there's actually some evidence from behavioral economics and so on that people actually tend to move those percentages further away from 100. But I don't think that's what's happening here when people put the 99.5% out. They, they say that so that people will round that up to 100%. And people don't sit down and think that um, a 1 in 200 risk, a 0.5% risk, is not actually something you would normally take in your everyday life. Because if you took a 0.5% uh, chance, an independent risk every day for a year, there's a north of 80% chance you would be dead by the end of the year. So you should not take uh, getting COVID-19 lightly, especially if you're in one of the older age groups. And we, as, as younger people, at least I count myself in that group, we need to take our responsibility of helping to control the virus and not becoming vectors ourselves to uh, sicken our parents or grandparents or faculty or older colleagues or any older person that we happen to uh, not wish death or serious illness upon. So, look, there's a lot of COVID-related epidemiological issues to address because I mean, the truth is for me, I'm following it, um, you know, and I'm trying to consume a lot of information over the last, whatever, seven plus months. But there's still some things, right, that you hear batted around all the time. Yeah. And they become confusing because of people seem to be sort of using them, appropriating them, taking them up and politicizing them sure. in kind of complex ways, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the first one I want to get into, because, and you know, you and I briefly exchanged messages about this the other day, Gavin, there was this recent Jacobin piece uh, with epidemiologists dreadful. talking about this issue. Yes, well, that's, that's the thing about herd immunity. Dreadful. And so I really want to get into that. Okay. What is okay. herd so, immunity? Why do some people get it wrong and why? Okay. So the way in which um, we are going to end this pandemic uh, is through enough people being immune to the virus that we all become protected. And we see this with vaccine-preventable diseases, right? With measles, for example. If you vaccinate enough people, um, then the whole population gets protected. And for COVID-19, most scientists think that probably, you know, something like 60 to 70% of the population needs to be immune for all of us to get some protection and therefore for this pandemic to end. Now, the mainstream scientific opinion is that that is only going to happen from a safe, effective COVID-19 vaccine that around 70% of the world receives. Uh, there are some folks who, who I would say are not pushing a mainstream opinion at all, who have this bizarre notion that somehow we could reach herd immunity without a vaccine. Their, their theory is that if you have people who are infected with the virus but then recover, then they will develop antibodies and they will have long-lasting, durable immunity. There's two problems with this theory, a bizarre theory peddled by that piece in Jacobin, peddled by 
Dr. Scott Atlas, the neuroradiologist who is now Trump's coronavirus czar, and I should say by a group in Britain as well, um, who are also peddling this myth. There's two big problems with this, this myth, this very anti-scientific idea. The first, of course, is that when you look at populations that have been very hard hit, let's take France and let's take Spain, both had absolutely horrific COVID-19 outbreaks. When you do proper studies, zero surveys, where you do surveys to look for antibodies, nationwide, national surveys, nationally representative surveys, you find that about 5% of people have antibodies. So that is a very long way from the 70% of the population, you know, having antibodies that you would need for, to bring the pandemic to an end. That's the first problem. The second problem is we simply do not know whether people who have been infected and recover and have antibodies have long-lasting, durable immunity. We simply don't know that at, at all. And, and that's one of the reasons why you know, the, the, the reporting on Amy Comey Barrett going out now and meeting um, senators in person is worrying. You know, there's the, perhaps she has antibodies, but in my view, you know, everybody at that super spreading event is potentially exposed and should be quarantining. I don't know why, you know, Mike Pence isn't quarantining. I think it's extremely hazardous that he's going to go in a room uh, on Wednesday night for the debate with Kamala Harris. I think that's extremely hazardous. So, so those are the two big problems with this notion um, that we're going to get to herd immunity through natural infection and recovery. Now, this is a very bizarre theory being peddled by Trump, being pe peddled by his cronies, by Dr. Scott Atlas, the neuroradiologist. Um, and obviously, you know, that bunch... Uh, that sort of very fringe view um, is very much in line with President Trump's desire for the whole world to just return to normality, right? He thinks that the economy will get a boost if you reopen America and you just get everyone kind of going back to life as normal. He wants all the schools reopened, colleges, universities, bars, restaurants. He wants the, you know, the, the engine of the economy roaring. Um, and he's not worried about the virus. Maybe he'll be more worried now, having, having been infected himself. Um, although the early signs, I'm afraid, are not promising. Tonight, he insisted on driving around, uh, you know, in his Secret Service car, putting his Secret Service drivers at risk, uh, whilst he still has severe COVID-19 being treated with dexamethasone and remdesivir, which you only give to you know, severely ill patients. What on earth is he doing? So the, the, this bizarre notion that you can reach herd immunity through natural infection and recovery, it fits very well with the sort of, you know, Scott Atlas, Trump, uh, Jacobin view, just, you know, let the virus rip through the, through the population. You know, it doesn't matter if people, young people get it. Um, you know, actually, it'll be a good thing. You know, we heard Rand Paul saying the same thing recently, doesn't matter, you know, coronavirus doesn't matter. And all we need to do is shield the vulnerable, right? You know, stick older people, you know, in a castle somewhere uh, and have, have them be completely isolated and remote from the rest of the society. That's obviously impossible. And of course, letting the virus rip through the economy is an appalling idea. Um, plenty of people will get sick. 
many, many, many will die, of course, as we saw in Sweden uh, early in the pandemic. Um, around 10% are going to go on to get uh, COVID-19. And it's a fallacy, of course, to believe that there is either economic recovery and growth or control of the virus. We know, of course, the first rule of viral economics is you control the virus. Uh, and the countries, perhaps not surprisingly, that have done the best at controlling the virus have also um, been uh, less hard hit economically. They go hand in hand. You know what's really shit for the economy? Sick people and dying people. So, uh, so this, this whole you know, herd immunity, shield the vulnerable, let the virus rip through society, it's all good view is very, very kooky, marginalized, uh, fringe, uh, and anti-scientific. And we really shouldn't buy into it. It's, it's harmful, it's inhumane, um, uh, it's ill-informed, uh, and it's appalling uh, public health. The way that we are going to get out of this pandemic is through a highly effective, safe vaccine. Perhaps the first generation of vaccines won't be that effective. I suspect it may take several generations of vaccines, and I, you know, I think we'll get there in the end. Um, it is not going to be like a switch that is suddenly switched on, you know, and everybody is vaccinated and the pandemic ends. This is going to be with us, I think, for years still. We are going to have to live, I think, with uh, you know, changes to, the, to, to, the, to our lifestyle that are long term. We have to just get used to masking. We're going to have to get used to distancing, to reducing density. We're going to need to be absolutely, utterly fixated on ventilation and filtration of indoor spaces. You know, these things are going to be with us for a while. I'll just add two things to what Gavin was saying. Number one would be he mentioned how this was kind of a, a fringe view. And I think it's important to call out that a lot of this, not all of it, but a lot of it is being promoted by researchers centered around one particular institute at Stanford, the Hoover Institution, or the Hoover Institute, which has a, um, a noted conservative bent. <clears throat> and the second thing is that uh, it, it really is appalling that the public health has been pitted against the economy. That's absurd. Every public health professional I know recognizes that economic health is part of health and also mental health is part of health. And we're often accused of ignoring those two things. And I don't know a single public health professional who does or wants to. It frustrates us that we have been put into a position through explicit policy choices by this administration that lead to that tension that doesn't need to exist. I mean, I encounter this, for example, it's a very, it's, it's a good faith and a heartfelt argument I get from people about um, not opening up stadiums for large gatherings, they go. But what about the people who rely on that revenue, the stadium workers and the bars around the area and so on and so forth? And my response to them is, I hear you. That's a very valid concern, but we should take a friggin' rounding error from the F-35 and make every single one of these people whole until the pandemic is yeah. done. We're the richest, most powerful country in the history yeah. of the world. Yeah. We, we really can't do this? No, I yeah. reject. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. I reject that our only choices are huge gatherings in the middle of a respiratory pandemic or people becoming even more impoverished and starving and losing their homes. That's absurd. 
you think that's the situation with the old state? Yeah, I would just like to echo that. Not only has our public health response been uh, the most anemic on earth, arguably, um, but so has our economic response, right? If you compare it to so many other nations who have essentially paid people to stay at home, giving them serious living wages. Uh, and, you know, we, we've seen at small scale some attempts like that, uh, you know, at county level or city level or state level. Actually here, for example, even in North Carolina, when people have had to quarantine or isolate, Mandy Cohen, who leads our health response, you know, uh, instituted financial support. Um, and that's a small example, but it's just it just goes to show the kind of thinking that is needed. So um, I want to follow up on something that Gavin mentioned and that Zach, you also hit on is this issue of like health, the politics of health. And a lot of people that don't have sort of any sense of like the historical or sort of cultural underpinnings of health think that it's like a neutral objective subject. And I think that anybody that has a sense of the history and how like health has been developed and medical trials and stuff like that, they know that health and politics absolutely intersects because of how people in power have politicized health. So I would love to hear um, Gavin and Zach, obviously, if you, uh, we'd love to hear you if you want to chime in as well. Love to hear sort of your response to people who say, oh, we shouldn't be politicizing health and these sorts of things, especially when we see the White House doing it. There is no such thing. I mean, health is politics and politics is health. I mean, they are they are intertwined, you know, in every facet and in every domain. I mean, whichever way you cut it, if you look at you know, health research or scientific research, what gets funded is highly political. What gets defunded is highly political. Here in the States, for example, it's been very difficult to get any funding to do gun violence uh, research um, because of the pro-gun lobbies. So every single element, every single dimension, every single aspect of health and public health is highly political, including, of course, you know, if you look at who is dying right now of COVID-19, it is Black, Latinx and Indigenous Americans who are dying at much higher rates. That is not because of anything to do with biology or genetics. That is due to structural violence, structural racism you know, the legacy of Jim Crow, redlining. It's to do with who the hell right now are our essential workers who are putting their lives on the line every single day. It is due to, you know, structural racism within the health service and who actually receives health care. So that you cannot depoliticize health. It is meaningless to say that. My next question is about a recent piece in uh, The Atlantic, which was I found to be exceptionally compelling, and we'll link it in the show notes, um, which argued that, in fact, the vast majority of COVID cases are caused by just 10 to 20% of people with the virus, which have resulted in 80 to 90% of the transmission. That piece suggests that most Western countries have focused too much on the average transmission rate and not enough on the fact that this virus seems to spread most through clusters. That this has really significant implications for mitigation measures. What's going on there? The first time that I kind of got my head around clusters, I think, was in June. When a study came out, it didn't get a lot of fanfare. It didn't really get a lot of pickup. Um, but I thought it was important um, because it was a study of 
COVID-19 infections in Japan, and it found a remarkable amount of clustering. Um, and the clustering was happening in places like bars, gyms, karaoke parties, uh, indoors, right, with people who were often singing or cheering or shouting, um, you know, people packed together. And Japan, as you know, had kind of partly as a result of, of this phenomenon of clustering, focused on what they were calling the three C's or avoiding the three C's. Closed spaces where the ventilation is bad, crowded places, close contact settings. Um, if, you, if you take that and then you look at this you know, rather tired debate between the droplet scientist and the aerosol scientist, I talked about that earlier, and it's been quite a contentious debate. Um, but, the, but the reality is both occur, right? Um, uh, you, you can get transmission from aerosols, these tiny, tiny particles um, you know, that stay in the air for a long time that can move far across a, across a room. I think the implications of that are that we have not focused adequately on these potential super spreading settings. Um, occasionally in the US, a story breaks through, you know, the wedding in Maine that led to several deaths, uh, the church uh, in Washington state, I think. But in general, you know, the, the, the risk of these clusters, of these super spreading events, you know, hasn't really permeated. I mean, I was, I was in Asheville uh, not long ago, uh, just driving through. And one thing is really astonishing is that the bars and the restaurants are absolutely packed to beyond capacity right now. And that made me very worried. Of course, North Carolina has a mask mandate, but guess what? You only need a mask to walk into the bar. The minute you have sat down at the bar or table, the masks come off. So you have people jam-packed inside in poorly ventilated spaces with no masks, shouting at the top of their voices. And that is extremely high risk. So the article that you mentioned in the, in the Atlantic would say, we are really screwing this up because we are not recognizing clustering and the settings and the conditions where clustering can occur. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And the only thing that I would add is that when we talk about super spreading, it's important to differentiate between the concept of super spreaders and super spreading events. And I think that the evidence that I'm aware of points more to events rather than individual people. It may be a combination, but I just tend to to focus on the idea of events and, and what people do rather than, uh, say, the amount of virus that a particular person is shedding. But it, it may be some combination of the two. But um, I think that the situational context plays a, a pretty big and important role. Well, just one final thought. I also um, really avoid the term super spreader because I think it is stigmatizing um, of an individual. And as Zach said, it's really about the, the circumstances, the event itself. Uh, and not the individual. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for clarifying that for us. And so we thought we'd move a little bit to the world of sport now. And so, Zach, this question is primarily for you, but Gavin, obviously, if you have things you want that you want to add in on the back end, feel free to do so. 
Um, so Zach, can you talk us through the best and the worst of how the pandemic has been handled in the world of sport? And of course, why the successes and failures have occurred? Oh, that's a broad question. Uh, I'll try and answer it in a relatively brief manner. So I'm just going to focus on the United States here. Uh, because, well, no, let's, let's talk globally briefly for a moment. So first of all, it's no secret that the U.S. has been worse than many other countries in the world at getting the pandemic under control. And that resulted in a slower return of sports here in the U.S. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, New Zealand, they were getting baseball back uh, before we did. New Zealand had rugby in full stadiums because they essentially stamped COVID-19 out of the country before we were even getting sports restarted here at all. Um, so, but setting that aside, talking about just what happened within the U.S. and Canada, uh, some leagues, uh, the National Women's Soccer League for starters, uh, then followed by Major League Soccer, uh, the NBA and the NHL, opted for what I would call bubble approaches. So trying to go to one or a few specific areas, um, make sure that you test everybody multiple times and then get all the players and staff together in a single or small number of geographic areas. Make sure that you're only letting uninfected people in as much as you can, and then severing face-to-face uh, -face contact with the outside world to prevent the virus from getting in. That was basically the bubble plan. And despite some hiccups, those by and large worked great. Um, there were some uh, some speed bumps, especially at the start of the MLS bubble, with a couple of teams having to pull out because of outbreaks. But fortunately, those outbreaks did not move beyond those teams in the bubble uh, due to limited uh, inter-team contact, uh, which turned out to be a godsend for MLS. Uh, then there were the other leagues, uh, Major League Baseball and the NFL. They both tried to come back outside of bubbles relying on very frequent testing and masking and distancing, but still allowing people, the players and staff to live at home uh, in their communities, some of which had quite a lot of virus circulating. MLB had a rough start. They looked okay during their late spring training called summer camp in the summer. And then shortly into the season, they had two major outbreaks on the Miami Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals. I thought the season was on the ropes at that point. MLB basically came out and said the only thing they could say to keep hope of their season alive, which was that these outbreaks were due to teams not following the protocols and that the protocols could be improved. So they tightened them up uh, a little bit in certain ways. Uh, they swore that this was going to be a come to Jesus moment for teams and players and staff. Um, I was skeptical because that's what they had to say, but it turned out they were right. And they came back and finished the season with basically no more cases, very few cases, and no outbreaks. So good for them. The NFL is obviously currently ongoing. They're dealing with their first major outbreak on the Tennessee Titans right now. Uh, but I thought they were going to have an even harder time than Major League Baseball because they have more players. So that's more chances for the virus to get in and more contact both during practices and in games. So that's more chances for the virus to spread. So I thought they were going to have a harder time than MLB. The jury is still out on that. We've seen one outbreak. Uh, the NFL is making noise like it was the fault of the Titans organization for not adhering to the protocols. 
uh, we'll see if there are further outbreaks. But so far, they've had quite a few kind of isolated cases that haven't turned into broader outbreaks. So I'm actually inclined to think that maybe this was a situation that was unique to the Titans, but but we're going to see over the next few weeks for sure. So, so Zach, if you were the commissioner of a professional sports league, and, and perhaps, I mean, maybe this varies entirely based on what the league is, what the sport is, but I want to know how would you have returned to play? What would your dream protocol be for returning to the field after initial lockdown? Well, I mean, there's, there's dream protocols from an epidemiologist perspective, and then there's what's realistic, right? So one of the things that uh, both the NHL and the NBA have been very open about is that this was not easy for their players and their staff. And I recognize that. Every time I would speak in the media about bubbles, I would say, listen, it's easy for me to sit here and say you should go into a bubble. I'm not walking away from my family for weeks and locking myself in Disney World or Edmonton, Canada, or wherever, right? That's that's not an easy thing. So, you know, what I would advise ideally as an epidemiologist versus what I would do as a commissioner might differ. Um, at that time, I probably would have pushed as much as I could for a bubble plan or maybe for, at a minimum, home market bubbles, which is what I was kind of pushing for the NFL, where you would have everyone move into some sort of campus type setup in your market and basically just travel from market to market and maybe even figured out a way for that to, um, for those campuses to contain a limited number of family members. It certainly wouldn't have been easy, but with the resources of the NFL, for example, I, I would have thought it plausible. They decided to go for a, in my opinion, riskier strategy that relied on everybody being very careful and vigilant uh, for months at a time. And uh, for cases not getting in and from the community and becoming outbreaks. And uh, so far, that's been relatively successful. But like I said, we'll, we'll still have to see. But I think that's what I would have looked for. And more to the point, I'll say this. My primary duty as a commissioner would be to not create a threat for the public and for the public's health. That's number one. It's respecting the community and the public. And I think Adam Silver of the NBA had a really good sense of that. And I think that the NFL does not. And the big issue that I see is fans and allowing uh, fans into stadiums. Right now in the NFL, that push is being led more than anything by the Dallas Cowboys, who had 31.5% of their stadium, 25,000 people full today. Indoor stadium, retractable roof closed. I mean, that is not something that we need to be doing right now, creating the potential for uh, a super spreader event, especially as we move into the fall and worry about um, worry about possible increases uh, attendant with the season uh, and start to see increases in some areas of the Midwest uh, in particular. Uh, it's just, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Every step we take back towards normality has to have a risk and a benefit associated with it. And our goal needs to be to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks. It's really that simple. I mean, it's not easy to answer what are the risks and what are the benefits, right? That's probably a lot of what Gavin does all day thinking about policy. But, but, but the basic framework to me is not that hard to grasp. And so when you talk about bringing sports back, there's economic benefits, there's psychological benefits. And I think you can do it in a way as has been proven by league after league now, that 
does not create a large threat to public health. But when you start talking about fans, even if there's only a moderate risk in outdoor stadiums, what are the benefits? And not just what are the benefits, but to whom are they accruing? Society is taking on the risk for money to accrue to teams and leagues. Society, teams, the way I've put it, are going to communities and demanding that we slam our car keys down on the roulette table and they swear the wheel is going to come up black. They just, they know it. They know they can do this safely. Please just give them a chance. And to me, the benefits of them getting a little bit of extra revenue and perhaps the modest mental health benefit of people who really want to go to games, which I get, but it may just not be something we can allow right now. That to me does not outweigh the rest of the community's right to live without an unnecessary public health threat. So my, my next question is um, directed towards both of you, but I'd like to start with Gavin. And I know Gavin, your, your um, uh, expertise is not particularly um, focused on college sport, but I'd like to ask about college sport and football in particular, but in the context of um, events within society at large. For a long time this summer, it looked like there wouldn't be a college football season this fall, and then there was going to be a college football season, and then there wasn't. And this sort of back and forth um, was at least in part due to some of the outbreaks we saw amongst teams um, and campuses across the country. Yet here we are with all but two of the of uh, two or three FBS teams playing um, all five power five conferences uh, are playing. Um, and I would add with outbreaks ongoing, whether or not like these are publicly known or not. Um, my question in general to you is, should college football be happening from a medical standpoint? Look, Back in July, I, I'm a columnist for Time magazine, and I wrote a column with Katie Mack um, at uh, NC State, arguing that the reopening of American colleges and universities in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years, at a time when actually, I mean, these decisions were being made, you know, July at the peak of new daily infections, right? 70, roughly 70,000 new infections per day, uh, that the reopening was just a giant public health experiment. Uh, as you said, there were already outbreaks uh, amongst student athletes on campuses. There had already actually been some kind of fraternity outbreaks. Uh, it was pretty clear that some of these student outbreaks were, were affecting staff as well. You may remember the UNC housekeeping staff outbreak. Um, and it was pretty clear to us that the risks of reopening were massive. And we wrote a piece sounding the alarm and really arguing that, you know, universities are congregate settings, right? We had seen what had happened in other kinds of congregate settings, nurses, sorry, nursing homes, jails, prisons, cruise ships. Uh, and it was just, you know, basic math and basic public health 
knowing that when you you know bring people together in this case bring all students back to college campuses uh you know load them up into dorm you know that students are going to party i mean that's that's inevitable you know young people are at their peak of risk taking and so it's absolutely inevitable that they're going to get together if you offer no safer ways of getting together um if you bring all students back to town you you are essentially increasing the density of the town uh, and if you've already got pretty rampant viral transmission in these communities before you even do that then you know the kinds of outbreaks that we have seen since reopening they were inevitable right just in the last 3 weeks over 62000 new campus infections and we argued that it really wasn't safe to do that and that it was putting you know people's lives at risks and lives at risk and ultimately you know like what is a university for right um if you're not putting the health and safety of your students first and your instructors and the service and maintenance staff and the communities around you then you know who who is it that you're existing to serve if you're not serving those people and at that time as you may remember the trump administration was putting heavy heavy pressure on universities to open on schools to open you know on sports to return they wanted to just sort of pretend uh that life can go on as normal and 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 they were very clear about this i mean at least they were frank and honest they, they were literally hoping that people would grow numb to the disease and the destruction and the death and the suffering around them they literally used that term numbness and we were worried that that really universities by reopening were sort of potentially becoming complicit in fostering that sense of numbness uh and so you know if you look at the universities around the world that had done well we had talked earlier about taiwan places like taiwan and new zealand i mean if you get community transmission down first and you reopen with a remarkable safety plan you know entry testing and regular surveillance testing and low density campuses and you know offering safer alternatives to partying you know then you can reopen taiwan reopened without outbreaks but guess what in the month leading up to reopening the whole country had fewer than 5 cases per day yes you can reopen a university under that setting yes you can return to sports i mean we all saw the pictures of you know sporting events in in taiwan but the conditions there none of those were being replicated in america so you know we were we were tearing out our hair and it gives us zero pleasure zero to see the catastrophe that has happened and you know i also wrote a piece for the british medical journal just before universities were planning to reopen in britain saying you don't have the conditions in place for safe reopening and you know uh, universities that have reopened have seen horrific outbreaks all across the country so this was this was entirely predictable uh, and and i i don't think personally that sports college sports university sports are safe right now because of all these sort of just basic public health conditions and the lack of protections and you as you've said you've seen outbreaks uh you've seen myocarditis you know it's it's difficult to know the prognosis for some of these students student athletes who've gone on to develop myocarditis what the hell are we doing yeah and and on on top of that like we are ignoring actual public health advice or at least 
uh, colleges across this country are in a variety of ways ignoring the evidence and the suggestions of public health officials in having people in the stands in barely enforcing masks or physical distancing and all of these things that you're kind of talking about. I'd like to just um, sort of uh, approach Zach with this same question to, to get your take on whether or not you think um, college football should be happening. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the more complicated discussions around sports and COVID-19 that there is to have. And I'll, I'll do my best to outline it again briefly. First of all, just in terms of colleges reopening, I, I think it does vary a lot based on the resources of the school, the size of the school, and its plan and its commitment to maintaining health. For example, the college that I'm at, a very small campus, has had about 40% or so of its students back, have most classes online, but some of them are being done in person, but they're doing things like wastewater testing of the dorms to quickly identify outbreaks. They have some asymptomatic testing. They have the resources of the Rollins School of Public Health at our main campus uh, in Atlanta, Emory, and uh, which is literally right next door to CDC. I mean, they have some of the best public health guidance uh, you can get. And I think they have done a fairly responsible job with reopening so far. We have not had, to my knowledge, um, any major outbreaks. But of course, then you look an hour northeast up the road at UGA, and they're an unmitigated... Can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. They're a clusterfuck. I mean, there's no other way to put it. An unmitigated clusterfuck. So it it just, it varies a lot. So I think we need to recognize those, um, those, those gradations. Now, as far as sports coming back, or college sports coming back, the fans issue is is just really upsetting to me. It's it's one thing to talk about a professional league like the NFL allowing fans, right? Because they're going to do what they're going to do. They need money, right? This is capitalism. This is they they want revenue, and they're going to do anything they can to get it within the bounds of the law. So if you don't have anybody who tells them they can't, they're gonna, right? But universities, institutions of higher learning, with as Gavin was saying something of a social mission, encouraging large gatherings for optional activities like sports is just really unconscionable to me. And not to call out any one person too much, but but the one that always stuck with me is the University of Miami, and it's for two reasons. One is, it's not meathead coaches or ADs who are making the call on fans. It's university presidents. Their university president, uh, Julio Frank, is the former health minister of Mexico. So I'm really not sure how he can look at the situation here and think that any number of fans is a good idea. And you know what? I don't think he does. Because you know what he did? He banned students from going to the games. But he still allows other fans from the community. So my question has always been, why is that? It's either because the students are a particular source of danger for bringing the virus into the stadium, which isn't a good look, or it's that he, the university feels a duty to protect their students, but not everybody else in the community, which arguably would be even worse. So I'm not a big fan of that. As far as playing college football at all, 
epidemiologists and economists and, and many other disciplines love to think in this concept of a counterfactual, right? So what would happen if they played versus what would happen if they didn't? And there's a few different groups that you need to think about that for. Everybody focuses on the players. And this was the whole argument that Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback at Clemson, made. He was like, our guys are safer here than they would be at home. Many of our guys come from poor backgrounds. They may live at home with multiple people who are essential workers. And honestly, we can keep them safer here. I don't doubt that that might be the case for some programs and some students. But I reject, given the sheer number of massive outbreaks that we saw over the summer just during workouts, that you can say that's the case on average. For example, I think uh, the University of Michigan, I think some of their players who came from poorer backgrounds probably were safer being on campus. Uh, Clemson had 37 positive cases at one point and didn't even pause practicing. So they were essentially a meatpacking plant or a prison. So no, I don't think even if you lived with a bunch of essential workers uh, in poverty that you were particularly safer uh, working out uh, for Clemson football over the summer. I'm sorry, uh, Trevor Lawrence. Um, So, you know, we need to think about who's safer under what situation. So you can't have the threshold for any league, college or pro, being zero cases. Because with the amount of disease in the U.S., people were going to get sick whether you were playing or not. So your ethical duty, in my opinion, is to keep the number of cases below what everybody else would have been experiencing had you not come back. I think that with the regular testing that they have set up right now, it's possible for many college football programs to do that. Possible, not guaranteed, because I still hear a lot of irresponsible rhetoric and uh, people not being willing to quickly recognize outbreaks and um, and make sure that they don't play and that they suspend activities when they have them on. And over the summer, you just saw outbreak after outbreak because apparently, despite being told this for months, nobody in college football cared to realize that you actually needed to do regular testing in order to prevent outbreaks. And they didn't do that. So they were creating a more dangerous environment, no question. I think they have the capability and the understanding now to theoretically create safer environments, but um, but it still takes the will and it takes a lot of oversight that I don't think college football is is capable of or or interested in, frankly, uh, providing. So that's a bit of a long rambly answer to to what I think about that. But aside from the players, we also want to think about coaches, right? What would they be doing if the season weren't on? And does that add risk to them or their families? Because they may be at more risk of of worse outcomes. And then you also, by and large, want to think about the effect on the broader community of playing versus not playing. And I think there are some really strong arguments that playing creates an arguably unacceptable threat to the community. Uh, Number one being the support staff needed to uh, take care of everyone. Uh, I'm worried more about them. Uh, than about the players. Number two being, if you play these games, people are going to congregate. I don't think you can go too far trying to make regulations based off what you think people might do, because you can start going down a little bit of a slippery slope of trying to predict behavior there. So I get it, but I think it is a consideration that you have to take in mind 
when you're comparing the counterfactuals. And uh, then I think by having fans gathered, you're just creating a completely unacceptable risk to the community. Um, that is not worth it in any way, shape, or form to me. And then the very last thing that you mentioned was uh, was masks. And I'll just say something about this. If you thought that gathering fans for an SEC football game, if you thought the fans who chose to go to that game, who are selected for risk-taking behaviors, were going to wear masks willingly, uh, I have many bridges to sell you. And if you thought Alabama or Georgia state troopers or local police were going to enforce mask mandates, I have several skyscrapers to sell you. (laughs) It's just unbelievable that people just sort of accepted that there's a mask mandate with no actual ability or, or realistic enforcement or reason to believe that that would actually be adhered to. And indeed, we have seen um, time after time that, that it is not. Well, and I think I think that brings us really uh, naturally to the next question, which is, you know, you're illustrating how, um, how do I say, how because university presidents are the ones who are in charge of making these decisions, that on the one hand, like they, you're, you're showing that they really do need to think through um, how, how fans, how students, how everyone's going to react, even as much of a struggle that is that they need to do that. Um, but if they are the ones making the decisions to allow college sports to happen and to allow fans in the stadiums, I mean, some, some places are allowing as many as 30% of their fan capacity to be in there. Why are they blaming students for spreading the virus? Um, I feel like that allowing games to happen almost asks for tailgating to follow, especially because, as you said, because it's not as if the local you know, law enforcement are going to be sort of raring to, to enforce the mask wearing. So how can we make sense of blaming students in this? Well, let me just quote my friend and colleague, Brian Knowles from Football Outsiders, who had a really good zinger when we found out yesterday that um, Father Jenkins, the president of the University of Notre Dame, tested positive, he said, uh, boy, he shouldn't have gone to that off-campus party, referring to the, uh, the Amy Coney Barrett uh, uh, announcement or nomination <laughs> ceremony. I, I thought that was very well put, and um, I don't think I have anything to add beyond that, so I'll toss it over to Gavin if he has anything he wants. Well, to I mean, just to add, of course, there were also 18 faculty from the same University yeah. of Notre Dame who were at yeah. that off-campus party, a party which, by the way, wasn't just in the Rose Garden, we now know was also held indoors with no masks, no social distancing, um, and a hell of a lot of hugging, uh, you know, perfect conditions for a super spreading event, which it was. You know, the hypocrisy, you know, makes my blood boil. Uh, And also just, if we just step back from a public health point of view, we know that if your strategy at a university is to simply kind of assign personal responsibility to students, urge them not to, you know, meet up, you know, urge them not to have parties, you know, get them to sign these ridiculous, you know, personal responsibility compacts, and then shame them and blame them when there are outbreaks, then you are, you are not adopting evidence-based public health. That is a failed strategy. Um, and we know that from decades of research which actually points to a far more effective approach, and that is harm reduction. And that's what universities should have been offering. If they chose to reopen and bring students back, you know, for campus living, for sports, then they had a duty 
to adopt harm reduction approaches, um, which have a much better chance of working, as we know from from promoting safe sex or safer alcohol use. Which, which for the, for the in the case of universities, means you've got to acknowledge that students are going to get together, but how can they do that in a safer way? And I think you know the creative universities have been doing things like having fire pits and Adirondacks and outdoor yoga classes and you know outdoor movie classes instead of you know indoor furtive frat parties uh you know they've been providing alternatives and so i i think for universities to have brought students back to town not have had robust prevention approaches like entry testing surveillance testing reducing campus density you know all of those that whole suite of things that you need and then to blame and shame students that is pathetic i think it's actually I agree 100% with both of you that it's it's pathetic. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. But I think it goes even beyond that because the college administrators are bringing students back with like selling them on the like the on-campus experience is the college yeah. experience and we will give it to you and therefore come back and give us your money and then blaming yeah. them. Uh, like the second that they get sick, blame them. And then on top of that, as we see with Notre Dame, it's like, no, but we can go party, yeah. but you can't mm-hmm. go party. You're not allowed to go party. We're the ones that can go party and do our thing. To me, it's, it's beyond pathetic and, and, and the epitome of hypocrisy. It's perhaps like negligent. It's, it's actually potentially criminal in some, in some respect. You know, my my college has been, I think, not just in an effort not to get myself uh, fired or get a talking to. I, I really do genuinely think that they have a uh, they have done a decent job because they have provided a lot of that and and a lot of the outdoor activities and stuff like that and, and embraced a harm reduction approach. And there has not been a lot of blaming, uh, as as Gavin said. That's not evidence based public health. We know that doesn't work. Um, look, I'm guilty of losing my temper from time to time and feeling like blaming individuals. And it is frustrating, especially when you see people like going to football games and not distancing and not wearing masks and things like that. But it is important for us all to keep in mind that um, to try to focus on the system more than, than the individual and that blaming the individuals does not accomplish anything other than maybe making us momentarily feel good. And that we need to meet people where they're at. We need to work within the harm reduction framework. We need to give them lower risk options. We need to figure out ways to replace high risk activities with low risk activities. But also at the same time, that does not mean, um, and I've had this discussion with with some friends and colleagues, that also doesn't mean rolling over. Like when we say compromise, it, it has to come from both sides, right? We can provide and suggest lower risk options, but also at some point that there are some things that we just need to say, uh, no, you don't get to go to bars. You don't get to go to concerts. You don't get to have nightclubs uh, for the greater good for everybody. And we just have to figure out where that line is. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, what's happened, of course, is that we reopened bars and restaurants. And as a result, we can't open schools. That's fucked up. You know, those show society's priorities and those are the wrong priorities. Yeah, it's a complete and total. It's a, it's a prioritization of a tax collection over over education it's uh 
it's it's really depressing. And I think that all comes back to really a lack of national leadership and a, a lack of a centralized and coordinated plan um, if we're trying to get back to the core of it. Yeah, and I think Zach said something earlier that I wanted to get back to, um, which was around, you know, what what does success look like for a campus that decides to reopen? And I think it is reasonable to say, well, let's compare it to what the rate would have been, you know, if you hadn't reopened. Um, I think it's a reasonable metric to compare, say, campus rates to the rates around you, perhaps in your city or county. Um, And we are now around halfway through the first semester, and we have got for sure at least, I would say, another year, another pandemic year of college, right? We might have a vaccine approved before the end of the year if we're very, very lucky, but that is not going to be widely available to Americans for at least another year, perhaps more. So we do have to think a year ahead. And, you know, it is a kind of a tragedy that universities that reopened did not take the opportunity to do proper, rigorous, prospective studies. Um, So that's a shame. However, we have, I think, enough experience now. There are enough universities that have been transparent about cases and about their protocols. There's been some modeling research to be able to tell a story of what you need to be doing going forwards. So I I think we're in a position now, you know, about a third of, of universities reopened and brought students back to town, about two thirds closed. I think if you if you are a university that's in a very high transmission setting and you you've decided you want to plan again for an online only semester, that is completely reasonable. If, on the other hand, community transmission has been driven down in your area and you now learn the lessons, the importance of entry testing, the importance of surveillance testing two to three times per week, ideally, the importance of quarantining of students on arrival uh, for two weeks, the importance of providing safer alternatives to social events that we've talked about. And then, of course, the whole range of these so-called non-pharmaceutical measures on campus, masks, distancing, um, you know, having classes mostly online. But if you have to have face-to-face teaching, making sure class sizes are small, you know, you've got ventilation and filtration so that the air is exchanged at least five to six times you know, per hour. If you do that whole host of things, and we now know that you really do need this integrated collection, not just one or two of these strategies, you know, then you've got a chance you know, to, to be like Middlebury College, which has so far only had two infections. Um, mm. so, so it can be done. It's hard, and there's a lot more that can go wrong than can go right. And the comprehensive nature really does seem to matter. We've seen some universities focus on just a few of these things, like University of Colorado Boulder very famously probably has the best ventilation on campus uh, in the country. I mean, literally, it has some some of the world's best respected ventilation experts. And they thought that that was the the way to focus, right? Make sure the classroom is safe. They call themselves a COVID-19 ready campus, but they hadn't realized that actually off-campus parties would cause super spreading. So that all fell apart. And actually, even some universities that had really great entry testing um, uh, saw outbreaks as well, again, because they hadn't thought about some of these off-campus parties. So you really have to do the whole suite um, and probably be a bit lucky uh, to see success. I think that, let me let me just pick up on that thread on lucky, actually, because I think that's 
that's really important, especially in the context of sports and fans. And I'll just say it briefly. <clears throat> a comment that I often get on why can't we have fans is, well, look, we've had a few events so far and uh, we haven't seen any spread, any super spreader events. And part of the thing with this virus is that there seems to be a lot of stochasticity, a lot yep. of randomness yep. with how much it gets spread. And we need to recognize that just doing, getting away with something once with this virus is not evidence that you are going to keep getting away with it. You keep rolling the dice and eventually they're going to come up the number that you don't want. So that's not a really good argument. And the other concern, you know, another thing that Gavin mentioned was um, failing to do a lot of really good prospective studies. We still don't have a robust enough testing and contact tracing network in many areas of this country. So I don't think that even when there are events that are held, if there is an outbreak in a stadium, I don't feel confident that we're going to detect it. So I really don't feel comfortable saying we have or haven't seen. Um, I think if it gets really, really big, we'll see it. I'm terrified that's going to happen with, say, the Cowboys. But um, we'll we'll see. That's that's just an interesting point to keep in mind about randomness. I think that's right. Look, I think if you you know uh, go on a journey in your car and you know drive along the motorway to your destination, you don't wear a seatbelt. You know you arrive there. Um, you were lucky, right? Uh, it was still a dumb idea to drive without a seatbelt. So I think that a lot of colleges and universities that may have been lucky so far and that seem to be somewhat kind of gloating about it, you know, their luck might run out. I mean, you, you mentioned the somewhat random nature. There is now emerging research that, that there, there, there probably is this kind of concentration of transmission around these, this smaller number of super spreading events. And, and my sense is that, you know, that could, we're all kind of, we're one, we're one step away from those super spreading events happening on any campus, even with all of these protocols. Of course, all these protocols, you know, are going to help. Um, but uh, I still worry. Well, I think we could go on all evening long <laughs> with both of you um, because there's absolutely so much to talk about. But I'd like to thank you both, Zach and Gavin, very much for taking the time out of your Sunday evening to, to chat with us uh, and coming on the pod. So thank you. Great both. pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod or check out our website at www.endofsport.com where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more.